Good morning, Servants Church. It's great to be with you guys again. We're going back to 1 Timothy, our, our study verse by verse through 1 Timothy after having a break last week. So on your device or in your Bible, please turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to just look at three verses, verses 14 to 16 today. And that might not sound like a lot, but these three verses are really uh, the hearts of Paul's first letter to Timothy. This is the key for the rest of the book. So follow with me as I read and then we'll pray and we'll get into it together. Paul writes, I hoped to come to you soon, but I am writing these things so that you, so that if I delay, uh, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And Father, we pray as we look at really what is a hymn or a creed of the early church, that God, we would realize how important it is for us to see that the truth is in Jesus and how important it is for us to act upon that truth and to see our lives changed by it. Lord, we want to understand and live out the priority of your truth uh, as your people for this world. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right. So as I said, it's only three verses, but it is really the heart of the issue. And what we're going to see in these verses is really just two main things, two main points that I want to really take the time to unpack. And the, and the first one we want to see is the fact that God calls his people to demonstrate his truth. Now, notice that Paul, in writing to Timothy, says, I'm really hoping to come see you soon. And so Paul, Paul's making it clear that he wanted to come to Ephesus, where Timothy was kind of helping the church reset its priorities. He's wanting to be there, but until he gets there, he's wanting to say, you know, I, I'm going to come as a, an, an apostle of authority, but until I get here, here's an authoritative letter. And this is important to understand because often in, in church history, there's been some debate about uh, what happens to the church. Where's the authority of the church once the apostles died? We know that the authority, of course, is always Jesus. He's the head. We're going to talk about a bit, that, a bit about that today. But what about, and we know he gave that authority to the apostles, but what about after the apostles died? Well, the, the apostolic succession that we see here mainly shows itself in the letters that the apostles wrote, in the scriptures themselves. That's the doctrine of the apostles. And we see an example of this where Paul says, hey, I want to be there to, to kind of underscore what I'm writing to you in the authority as an apostle. But this letter, it's the authority of an apostle. It's my authority kind of given to you, Timothy, to share with the church. So he says, I want to be there, but if I delay, here are the things I want you to understand. He says in verse 15, if I delay, I want you to know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Now, this is interesting because we're going to see in verse 16 in this ancient hymn or ancient creed, these really powerful truths, these truths about who Jesus is and why we worship him and why we follow him. But he starts off by saying, I'm writing this so that uh, uh, someone in the church, a believer in the church, knows how they ought to behave. And it's important that we recognize when he says ought to, this is not a suggestion. Paul's given an imperative. He's writing in this apostolic authority and saying, this is the standard that 
God sets for you as the church, writing as an authoritative representative of Jesus himself, this is how uh, the, the church ought to behave. Now, and when we talk about behave too, he's not just talking about this is what the church needs to believe. Now, there is that. It's not less than that, but it's more than that. It's so often what happens with us in, in, our, in our Christianity, especially in modern Western Christianity, we, we want to make sure that we get the concepts right. Do we have the right ideas about God? And that's really important. We're going to talk about that. But the right ideas about God are really only authentically understood if we're living them out, if we're actually walking with God. Christianity really isn't about concepts. It's about relationships. And so when Paul says, this, this, is, this is what you need to do, he's wanting to make sure that they recognize that God calls, has always called his people to demonstrate his truth through this intentional behavior. It doesn't happen by accident. It's us making choices to say, I want to respond to God, respond to people according to the dictates of God's word. But then he gives us these three phrases in the second part of verse 15 that are really important for us to understand. And in these three phrases, he shows us how that demonstration of the truth is to happen as a gathered family. And really with these three phrases, Paul's kind of laying out what is the mission of the church. In other words, what does God expect his people to be and do? So let's look at those three phrases. The first phrase he uses, he calls the gathering or the gathered uh, uh, God's people, he calls them the household of faith. The household of faith. Now this is interesting because... The word for household there, it's, it's used several times in, in Paul's letters. And sometimes it can mean a house, like a building, but usually it refers to those who would occupy the building. In other words, it's the people, not the building. It's the household of faith. And so what, what we're seeing here is, is Paul's talking about these people. Well, how does someone become a part of the household of faith? The Bible's really clear. It's through a supernatural birth. The scripture says, Paul writes this in Timothy, I mean in Titus chapter 3, another pastoral epistle. Timothy, uh, Paul writes, sorry, uh, he saved us, that is God saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, listen, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. This is what he's talking about. Regeneration is kind of a fancy theological term that means what Jesus said, to be born again. We need a spiritual new birth. So it's not just about us, how we behave when we come to church. It's how we are to act as the church. The church isn't a building. It's a people. It's the people of God. And it's those who have been made the people of God by the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. But he also calls it the church of, he calls us, the church of the living God. Now, this word church that we use all the time never refers to a building. Church was a secular term that referred to any group of people that gathered for any uh, specific purpose. They're the, literally the called out ones. It's this Greek word, ecclesia. It means those that are called out. So you could have a, a group of people that were called out to do a specific task for the Roman government. They would be the church for that purpose. But when Paul uses the term church, the secular term of the called out ones, he's talking about call, we've been called out to be the, the people of the living God. And specifically that we are called to gather as the people of the living God. Now this is important. 
because it's the gathering of us together that, that provides the opportunity for us to demonstrate uh, the truth of who God is. Now, Jesus talks about this in, in John chapter 13. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Did you notice the phrase one another? He uses it several times. This is a really important distinctive because what Jesus is saying here is that we're not known as his disciples simply because we're nice people, that we do nice things for our neighbor. That's important and we're called to do that, but that's not what primarily identifies us. What primarily, primarily identifies us as God's people is that we gather together that we would love one another and that we do that with this missional purpose, this purpose of mission. Jesus himself said right here specifically that all people will recognize us as his followers. Why? Because we have this committed love for each other. This is why it's a very difficult time for us right now in kind of semi-lockdown. It's difficult for us to have the restrictions that we have on our church services. It makes it a bit trickier for us to gather together, especially to gather together in a way that those on the outside can look and see, look at how these people love one another. But it doesn't mean that we don't still have a call to do this. It doesn't mean that we've stopped being the church. It means that we need, need to be a bit more creative. But this is what Paul's saying about us calling to demonstrate the truth as a growing family, as those who are committed to love each other, to share lives together. Interesting, the Apostle Paul said a similar thing in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14. Paul kind of uh, breaks down uh, the, what we call the gifts of the Spirit or, or the talents and abilities that the Holy Spirit gives us so that we can love, for, for, uh, we can love one another. And many of you guys, if you're familiar with the Bible, know that 1 Corinthians 13, the middle, the middle chapter of that section, is all about love. And it's really interesting because when we get to chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, Paul makes this statement where he says that, that um, as we live this out, as we, we, we are producing this supernatural love, that what happens is that God moves in powerful ways, including things through things like prophecy. He moves through powerful ways and that unbelievers or uninformed people come to our gatherings and they say, surely God is in this place. See, when the scripture talks about that we are the household of faith, that we are the church of the living God, it's that we gather together to house God, or you might say to show this is where God lives. Now, this is not saying that God's not everywhere, that he's not omnipresent. We know that's true about God. There's no place that God cannot be. But that God shows himself, he manifests himself as we gather together as his people with this kind of loyal love as those who have been uh, born again or regenerated by the Spirit. Now, look, look at this last phrase in verse 15. He, he, Paul refers to the church as the pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, some of your versions might say pillar and ground or, or foundation, something like that. But it's important that we recognize what's being said here. Paul's not saying that we're the ones that create the truth about God. That's not what we do. In fact, we, we can't even figure out the truth about God. We need God to reveal himself to us. I mean, doesn't that make sense? I mean, if you don't know, really, if you've never met me, if you're watching this today and you've never met me, you can figure some things out about me just by the video. You can, you can just know that I 
have a good dress sense, I have a really nice pink shirt on. You can know that I lost my hair probably at a fairly early age. You can tell that I'm not from Norfolk, I'm actually from California. There's certain things you can know about me, but what you can't know is what actually goes on in my heart, what actually makes motivates me. It's hard for you to know that unless I disclose that to you, unless I reveal it to you. How much more with God? And so when the Bible talks about that the church is, that is the gathered people are, the pillar and buttress of the truth, he's not saying that we're creating the truth or that even this truth is found through some sort of uh, the best academic scholarship. What he's saying is that we are stewards of the truth. It doesn't belong to us, but we are responsible to make sure that it's upheld, it's exalted to its right place. That's what the idea of pillar is. And that it's also protected, that it's, it's held up, that no one can kind of tear it down. That's the idea of buttress. And so we're called to be stewards of liberating truth. This is an identifying characteristic of who God's people are. Now, can you understand why when Paul gives this, this bit of instruction that this is so central to the whole letter? That Paul wants Timothy to understand, he wants those who will hear this letter read out to their congregations in Ephesus to know that God has called his people to demonstrate his truth through these kinds of relationships, these committed, loyal relationships that are desiring to uh, keep the truth in, in the place it's meant to be. Now, this is really important because one of the things that we have to understand is that we cannot defend any truth about who Jesus is unless we're willing to live it out. One of the things that we get accused of often as the church is that People say, I don't really want to go to church because the church is full of hypocrites. People say they believe and they don't follow through. This is maybe even more of a problem in the United States than it is in Great Britain. But here, here's the reality. First of all, hypocrisy is not a Christian issue. It's a human issue. Second of all, this is one of the things why we as Christians need to be more than just people who are nice and go to church on a Sunday morning. We need to be those who are being transformed that our lives are being changed, that we're demonstrating that the truth of who Jesus is has had an impact on our life. This is Paul's main point. Now, in talking about this, and giving us his first uh, main point, that God calls his people to demonstrate truth, he then goes on to quote this hymn or this creed. Now, what we mean by a creed, in case you, you don't know what that means, it's, it's, it's something that would have been stated publicly and corporately by the church. Oftentimes these creeds would be stated corporately before they would uh, go to the Lord's table or have communion, or these creeds might be stated publicly before someone was baptized. There were several of these, these creeds that were used in different parts of the church's gathering, different parts of their liturgy. These were truths that were meant to be universally accepted and upheld. These were the, some of the truths that were meant to be held, upheld like a pillar and protected like a buttress. This is, this is what he's talking about. Now, some people think this is a hymn because there's a rhythm to it. Now, I don't know the Greek language, but according to some Greek scholars, there's such a rhythm to it that it sounds like this was, would have been something that was sung. And this is interesting, kind of a side note to what we're talking about, but interesting. We need to be careful about what we sing. Because when we sing truth, it, when we sing things, it sticks in our mind. It, it, it gets held deeply within our hearts. It's amazing how I can be doing some random thing and some jingle from a dumb commercial advert come into mind from 20 years ago. Because music is powerful. 
And, and so there's a, there's, there was definitely been the practice of, of the church for centuries to put truth to music so that as we sing these truths, we're not just celebrating who God is, but we're hiding these truths in our hearts. So there's a good chance that that's what this was, a hymn that they sung to remember these things. But he, here's what Paul's wanting us to understand. Here's what the scripture wants us to understand is that in the same way that God calls his people to demonstrate truth, it's important for us to understand that God sent his son to define truth. As I said earlier on, truth is not defined by modern scholarship. We might discover truth through modern scholarship. In fact, scholarship's an important thing. But scholarship doesn't define truth. God defines truth. Specifically, the truth of Jesus. Jesus defines truth. So what I'm going to do is, in, in, in talking about these basically seven things that we hear in Paul's uh, confession in verse 16, seven things I want to point out that are truths about Jesus. And in a real sense, I'm just kind of introducing you to doctrines that Christians have always believed. So this might get a little bit heady, but I want you to try to concentrate and follow me, and it'll make sense when we tie it up in the end. So first, notice what Paul says in verse 16. Paul says, great indeed we confessed is the mystery of godliness. Now remember, when Paul uses this term mystery, when we see this in the New Testament, this word mystery, it doesn't mean something that we can't fully know. Now there are things like that in Christianity, things that we can't fully get our head around. They're just kind of a mystery. They're truths that we can say, okay, that's a truth, but we can't get our head around it. But that's not what he means here. The idea of mystery here is something that cannot be understood until it's revealed. When he says the mystery of godliness, this, this idea of godliness is really important. We're going to look into this more when we get to chapter 4. But it's important that we recognize that here the, the, the word godliness really just is a way for Paul to say the entire scheme of the gospel or God's total plan to make people godly so they can be with him forever. So the mystery of godliness you could say is the God's unfolded plan of, uh, that he has for his creation. So, so now listen. So we're going to sum this up with one word. It's the word revelation. The word revelation. And, and when it comes to revelation, it's important that we recognize that Jesus is God's eternal plan made known. Now there's lots of stuff that we don't know about the future, but we do know God's main plan. We can know what God is up to. Maybe that's difficult when we're going through a specific suffering how, how, or, 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 or having a specific challenge in our life. How does that suffering, how does that challenge fit into God's plan? That's tough to know. And sometimes we just don't. But we do know God's overarching plan, and it's centered on Jesus. Jesus is the one who reveals that plan. Listen to this. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, speaking of Jesus, he calls him the lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Now, think about this. This is showing us that even before God made the world, he planned to become, uh, to take on human flesh as the person of Jesus Christ and to die as a sacrificial lamb for our sins. This has always been God's plan. So th because it's always been God's plan, when Jesus comes on the scene, he's not saying, here's something new. He's saying, here's what God's always wanted to do. In fact, in, in this little teeny little letter called Jude, toward the end of your Bible, right before the book of Revelation, uh, this is what the author Jude, who's the half-brother of Jesus, here's what he writes. This is one of the earliest letters in the New Testament. Jude writes, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, appealing for you to contend for, notice, 
the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. This is important because the idea of this, uh, this faith that's been delivered, that faith was delivered even before all the books of the New Testament were written. Now, it doesn't mean that New Testament books are important or not inspired by God. Of course they are. What that means is uh, these, uh, these apostles and these prophets and these people that were writing these New Testament letters, some of which are in the scriptures, some of which didn't make it, all those things were things that were based on what has already been revealed in Jesus. Jesus is the word of God, big W. The scriptures are the word of God, little w. So we believe the scriptures are inspired. We believe the scriptures are authoritative. We believe the scriptures have, have, uh, are without error. But we, we see that really the message is about Jesus. So when we talk about the faith, we're talking about that which is about Jesus, who he is, what he's done, what he's doing by his Holy Spirit, and what he does upon his return. He's that revelation. And so this is what we're talking about when we talk about the mystery of godliness. But notice what it says, uh, again, in verse 16. It's the first phrase of this hymn was, he was manifested in the flesh. Some of your versions say, God was manifested in the flesh. Some say Christ. But no matter what, we know it's talking about Jesus. That's the clearest thing. And here's where we're going to use, again, one word to define the truth that was being sung or, or, or spoken through this creed. It's the word incarnation. Now, that's just a big word that means something becoming fleshed out, or as we would say, God becoming flesh. In a very real way, Jesus, and in fact, in a very exclusive way, Jesus is our access to God. This is how those who followed him at first, those he chose to follow him, this is how he saw it. Uh, listen to what the beloved disciple John wrote in his epistle in 1 John chapter 1. Speaking of Jesus, he said, We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes. We touched him with our own hands. He is the word, notice big W, of life. This one who is life itself was revealed to us, and we have seen him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father, and then he was revealed to us. We proclaim to you that we ourselves have actually seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now there's tons there, but just let me sum it up in this. What John is writing, he's saying, listen, all the things that I'm writing to you as an apostle, as one sent by Jesus to make it clear who he is, all of that is based on firsthand experience. That, that he says, I didn't just get here uh, a teachings from Jesus. They understood that Jesus was the theme of his teachings, that Jesus was the point of his teachings. That everything that we know about God comes from Jesus. Every way that we can be right with God is provided through Jesus. He's our access to God. Read read his gospel, the gospel of John, and you'll see this over and over again. That Jesus is our access to God. This is why the incarnation is so important. Now, what's the next phrase? He was manifest in the flesh. Then it says, he was vindicated by the Spirit. Some of your versions say justified. And and sometimes people can read that and they might be thinking, justified, Jesus is perfect. Why would he have to be justified? We know why we need to be justified because we're not perfect. What about Jesus? Well, this is why the ESV translates this vindicated. Either way, it means the same thing in this context. And it has to do with this. It has to do with Jesus' 
resurrection. Because the Bible teaches, listen, that all Jesus' claims to be God's son would be meaningless unless he was actually resurrected. And it was by the Spirit's power that resurrected. In other words, Jesus' claims to be God's son were confirmed by the Spirit's power. In one sense, you could say by the miracles he did, but, but ultimately by his own resurrection. That's what the Scripture teaches. Now listen. The Scripture says, Paul writes this, that he, speaking of Jesus, was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Did you get that? Paul's making it really clear. How do we know that Jesus is actually God's only begotten Son? Because he rose from the dead. This is why our Muslim friends, as much as we love them, this is why they can't handle the fact that Jesus died. They deny that Jesus actually was crucified. They would say there's no way God would let one of his prophets be crucified. But God himself took on human flesh and died on that cross for us. But he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. That resurrection is a key to what it means to be a Jesus follower. Now, let me pause here for a second because here's a good example of where we can have uh, Christianity in concept, but not Christianity in action. Does your life reflect, if, if you claim to be a Jesus follower, does your life reflect that Jesus is alive? So that when you're talking to God, you're not talking to a concept, you're not talking to the air, you're not talking to yourself, you're talking to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has risen from the dead, Jesus, that you are com communing with him, do, do you live your life in such a way that you believe you're going to be resurrected? Because that's what Jesus promised his followers. That because he's, going to be, he's the resurrection in life, we'll be resurrected. Do you live that way? Do you believe that? This is why it's important for us to recognize. This is why Paul starts this section by saying, look, here's how you ought to behave. And then gives the truths that should dictate our behavior, should influence our behavior. So that's the third word, resurrection. Let's look at the next phrase. Manifest in the spirit, uh, manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels. This is interesting. The word for seen there, though, there's, there's different words in the Greek language for see or seen. Some just mean like a casual, like, oh, I noticed something, or it just passed by. This is a word that means to gaze at. It's a word that, that, that means like this has captured your attention and you're enamored. It's kind of what you do if you were going to worship someone in person. You would, you would see them, you would see them for they are, and then you'd bow down and worship. And this is what we see here. This is why I want to sum this up in this one word, adoration. It means to adore someone. In, in this sense that Jesus' life and ministry caused the angels to gaze at him in worship. Now this is really important. It's important because there are some, there are, are, are some false groups, uh, Joe's Witnesses being one of them, that teach that uh, Jesus himself is just a highly exalted angel. But we never see any example in Scripture where one angel worships another. God's created angels to worship him and, and, and to do his bidding. Angels would never worship a man. Angels would never worship another angel. And yet we see, especially in the first couple chapters of the book of Hebrews, the angels bow down and worship Jesus, even though he's a man, because he's not just a man. He's God who took on human flesh. Now, now listen to this. This is interesting. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter writes and he says, It was revealed to these Old Testament prophets that they were, not serving, uh, they were serving not themselves, but you. In other words, Peter's saying, 
that when the Old Testaments were written, the, the prophets recognized this was not just for their generation, but for future generations. He says, in the things that have now been announced to you, through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, and here's what these things are. They're things in, into which angels long to look. So the indication there is, is, is Peter saying, listen, all the things written by the Old Testament prophets, they were for the generation that you're in now, the gen- writing to the generation who would have uh, uh, been the same generation as Jesus. But he's saying all these things, that what the Old Testament writers wrote and what happened during New Testament times, all these things are things that angels long to look into. Why? Why do the angels care about what we do? They're angels, man. They're totally powerful. They're in the presence of God. Why would they care what we're doing? Listen, there's something that seems to be indicated by Scripture that God is teaching the angels something about himself that they wouldn't have known except through God saving us. That there's a worship that's brought forth to God, a glory to God in the fact that God makes us and saves us, that angels look at and worship and marvel, they gaze at. That's the idea here. I I want you to think about this for a second. I want you to think about how profound that actually is. That you are a part of something that is impacting eternal creatures if you're a Jesus follower and you're walking with him. That they marvel how God can save such frail people like us, such sinful people like us. They marvel at it. Adoration. Now, Jesus was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, and it says, proclaimed among the nations. Some of you have the phrase Gentiles. Either way, it means the same thing, that the gospel is for the Jew first, but it's also for the Gentiles. The good news about Jesus is for everybody. I love this, and you can guess what the word is, proclamation. This is the one word to to bring this out. That is, that Jesus is the message for every tongue, tribe, and nation. This is important because the Jesus that we're talking about here is not uh, uh, the, the sort of invention of white Europeans. The Jesus we're talking about here, the Jesus of the Bible, was a brown-skinned man who, who, uh, whose ministry was in the Middle East, whose followers scattered throughout the known world uh, to Africa, uh, eventually even into Europe. We're talking about a Jesus that when this was written, when Paul wrote these words, the gospel probably had not quite yet got into Europe. So we're not talking about a white European Jesus. We're talking about the Jesus of the Bible who is the God and who is the, uh, the savior of all men of every tongue, tribe, and nation. Now, now, this is important because Jesus commanded his followers. He didn't want them just to go to their own ethnic group, the Jews. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe uh, all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is, this is amazing. What these guys celebrated, the truth that is in Jesus, that's defined by Jesus, is a truth that we're meant to share with everybody. We shouldn't have one message in Great Britain and another message in Canada, and then another message in Nigeria, and then another message in uh, Japan. It's the same message for all nations, because the message is him. The message is that this Jesus, this Jewish savior, died for all mankind, was resurrected for all mankind. He is our message. See, the message of servant church isn't like, you should come to our church because the coffee's amazing. The coffee is amazing, by the way, but that's not why you should come to church. And the message of servant church isn't, you should come to church because the people are so great. The people are great, but that's not why you should come to church. 
The message of Servants Church is simply and, and only Jesus. It's him that we want to hold out to you. It's him that we want to demonstrate in our communion with each other and our commitment to each other. He's our proclamation. So he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world. Now the next word I'm going to use to sum this up is salvation. And I think it's important here that we recognize when we're talking about salvation, we don't just mean uh, being delivered from a future punishment. It is that, but it's much more than that. We're talking about the fact that we can have an assurance that we're going to be delivered, but also that the reason we're assured that we're going to be delivered is because God has promised that he's going to change us through Jesus. And this is what we see in the person of Jesus. When we talk about salvation, we mean that Jesus changes everyone who trusts in him. He changes us all. This is important because if we talk about following Jesus, we're not talking about just giving lip service. We're talking about having our lives transformed by the living God. We're talking about this resurrected Savior who works in us, both as individuals and corporately, to change us from the inside out by the power of his Holy Spirit. The the book of Revelation has this great picture of all these different nationalities gathered around the throne worshiping. These that know that they have been bought with a price. These are people that have been transformed and therefore stand before God. It says, and when Jesus had said these things as they were looking on, he was, oh, sorry, wrong verse. (laughs) It says, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. This is what they're saying to Jesus. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and a priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. These are not unchanged people that have the privilege of worshiping like this and reigning with Jesus. These are transformed people and Jesus transforms, he changes everyone who puts their trust in him. That's what salvation is. Do you know you need to be changed? Maybe you're new to this Christian stuff and you're thinking, okay, what does it mean to be a Christian? What's Christianity about? And I hope you get it. It's all about Jesus. But I hope you also understand what he offers you is change. He offers you a changed life, a changed purpose, a changed meaning, a changed heart. Jesus actually, when he changes us, he changes our affections. He begins to make us love things that we didn't love before and reject things that we thought we could not do without. He transforms us. That's salvation. This is what it's talked about, believed on in the world. Not just that they kind of sign some follow-up card at some event. No, that's what's happened in modern Christianity. We're talking about people in cultures that had nothing to do with Judaism sometimes being radically changed by this person, Jesus. And lastly, it says, he was taken up in glory. We sum this up with one word that describes the event here, which is the ascension. Ascension. See, Jesus, when he died and then he resurrected, he showed himself to his followers for 40 days. In fact, there's, there's one point we know from the book of 1 Corinthians where Jesus showed himself to 500 people at once as, a, as the resurrected Savior. But then at the end of that 40 days, he ascends into heaven. And we read about this in Acts chapter one. Listen to this. And when Jesus had said some things to them, he's finishing his speech with them. 
Uh, as they looked on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. This is what we call the ascension. Jesus ascends into heaven. They didn't bury him again. He didn't die again. He ascended to heaven as the resurrected Savior. So then these angels are seeing all the followers looking up going, whoa, what did we just see in Jesus' ascension? And here's what they say. Listen, they say, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Sorry, will we'll come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. Did you get that? The whole uh, uh, glory in the ascension is, or, or one of the big glories in the ascension is that when Jesus goes uh, into heaven, we know this is how he's gonna come back. We're not waiting for another Jesus to come back or just people to kind of get this Jesus thing and everything's gonna be sorted. We long for the day when he comes back. He, he physically comes back as the resurrected Christ and solves the problems that we have. And when that happens, we're gonna know. There's gonna be no doubt that he is Jesus, that he is the same Jesus. But also, when Jesus ascended to heaven, what did he do? The Bible says he, he was seated at the right hand of God. And that affects us. This, this gives us a, a, a privileged position. This is our confidence that Jesus is seated right now at the right hand of God. Listen to this, Ephesians chapter two. It says, God raised uh, uh, us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. See, this is why we are baptized. This is why Jesus commands baptism. Baptism shows a union between us and Christ. We're buried with him in his death and we're resurrected with him in his resurrection. And the Bible says that when we become Jesus followers, when we put our faith in God, when we are regenerated people, what happens is, is that we are, have this position, this, this special relationship with God because of Jesus and because his special position with God. This is our privilege. And so Paul here is, in, 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 in quoting this hymn or this creed, Paul here is, is reminding them, listen, don't forget of your great position. Again, has this changed your life? Has this brought about transformation? Because it's meant to. We, we can be so concerned with those who have authority over us. And, and understandably so. There's a lot of injustices done by those who have authority over us. But do you realize that the God we serve, the Jesus we follow, has authority over all other authorities? That's why he's called the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, hopefully you get why the tagline for our church is, it's always about Jesus. That's our tagline because guess what? According to the scripture, it's always about Jesus. This is what we see. The same God who calls his people to demonstrate his truth has defined his truth through the sending of his son. See, we don't just kind of say, oh, let's see where the evidence goes and just kind of make our best guess about what truth might be. Or we don't say truth means one thing for me and one thing for you. No, we say we can know the truth and the truth can set us free. That's what Jesus said. Why? Because he is the truth. is the way, the truth, the life. So let me ask you some questions. Has God changed or how has Jesus changed your relationship with God? Again, maybe you're new to this Jesus stuff. Maybe you're kind of just 
tuning in for one of the first times and you're seeing this, and I gotta ask you a question. You, probably there's a good chance if you're watching this that you have some sort of belief in God or you're at least hoping that God exists. How do you relate to him? Do you have a relationship with him? If you recognize that he's connected to Jesus, how has who Jesus is and what he's done changed your relationship with God? I've known so many religious people who believe in God, even believe in Jesus, but they relate to God as if their whole relationship is based on them being good enough. But when Jesus come, he, he comes, he proves to us that none of us can be good enough. And he dies for us to make us good enough. He's what puts us, puts us in that special position to be with the Father. He changes our relationship with God. What about your relationship with others? How has Jesus changed your relationship with others? The truth is we are all prone to want to kind of be with, we gravitate towards those people that are like us. And that's okay to a degree. We, we, we do that, it's natural, it's not even bad. But Jesus calls us to love all those that belong to him, to be committed to all those. Has what Jesus has done for you affected you in the sense that you love people that aren't like you? Hey, if you want to talk about people that are different, there's no one less different than Jesus than you and me. And yet he sought us out. He was a righteous, perfect human. And he sought us out. He was the king of the Jews and he set, set, sought us Gentiles out. Do we respond to that love and say, Lord, you sought me out. I want to seek out other people that aren't like me just because they're my brothers and sisters in Christ. And as we talk about these things, I know this, uh, there's a lot here that we talked about and some of it's quite heady and maybe hard to grasp, but let me ask you, even the things that you do understand, are these just truths that are just concepts or are they turning into actions? Which things about Jesus, which truths about Jesus need to grow from simply being a concept? to something that actually changes your life. I wanna kind of end with this. And if you don't get anything else, get this. But the first thing we, we really hope that you see is that Jesus being God's only begotten son and him dying on the cross for your sins and him rising the dead from the dead the third day and him ascending to heaven, that's what God has provided for you to be in right relationship with, with him. Are you responding to that? Are you letting that truth change how you approach God? Are you approaching God in faith because of that? I wanna challenge you to do that today. Let me pray for you and uh, we'll go from there. Father, I just pray that you would help anyone who's hearing this today, Lord, to respond. Anyone who's watching this days after it was recorded, that they would respond to the truth of who you are. That Lord Jesus, they would see that you are indeed God's truth. You define what his truth is. And that, Lord, as people come to see you as that, that you would set them free. Free from the consequence of their sin, free from the power of their sin. They would come to know you in truth and walk with you in truth. And I pray for those of us who are already believers that you would help us to live out who we are. That we would be that household of faith that we would be those gathered, uh, uh, the gathering of the living God. Lord, that we would be the, the pillar and buttress of the truth. Lord, help us to do that. Please, we pray.
In Jesus' name, amen. I want to maybe say, if you didn't notice, that this is actually part one of a a two-part message. Next week, as we talk about the priority of God's truth, we're going to talk about the fact that God's truth is often under attack. And we have to recognize what those attacks are and how we stand against those things. So we really encourage you to come back and do that. God bless you guys. Have a great Lord's Day.